Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Oh my goodness. Happy Thursday morning, everybody. We are back. The boss man is back. Say what up. Here we are. Here we are. A lot of people have been writing to us, Ian, saying it sounds like you guys are having an amazing summer in Barcelona. Amazing. And my answer to those people is we are having an amazing summer. Before we came here, I'm, you know me, Mr. Hype Train. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. I'm talking it up. I'm talking about how amazing it's going to be because we haven't been there in so many years. All coming out of this COVID thing. By the way, one of the topics in this podcast later on, if you stick around, is one of the most under-talked about things I think that happened because of COVID. I'm going to get to that later on. Anyway, I hyped the whole thing up. You had a countdown calculator probably on your <laughs> desktop. <laughs> it's been better. It's, been, it's just been fun. And why? Just hanging out with smart people, doing business, finding ways to cook up fun. I think sometimes, you know, me and you both can fall into the camp of being a little tough on ourselves, giving the old guilt trip about how hard we work. Right. I agree. All right. And it's fun to just be like, you know what? Here's our schedule. Let's work every day for these hours. Let's work really hard. And then let's go cook up some fun. Is this the story you told yourself when you decided to take this Friday off to go <laughs> ride your bike? And then you wrote me into it as well. <laughs> All right. I'll be there. <laughs> So in today's episode, we are going to talk about alternatives to traditional education, which is the type most of us got for hyper mobile families. We're also going to talk about some digital nomad debate. I thought at the top here, we could do some quick news. Been looking at the numbers at Dynamite Jobs over the summer. We had a great Q1, a great Q2, and things are finally starting to slow down a little bit in terms of hiring for the bootstrap community. I think hiring in general is way down. All these large tech companies have announced either layoffs or hiring freezes. We weren't seeing that so much in the bootstrap SaaS smaller businesses until recently and now it's starting to slow down just a bit. I think that it's going to present some interesting challenges for these companies, but also I think it's going to present some opportunities. The candidates haven't slowed down. That's yeah. one thing that's interesting is, you know, everybody that was looking for a job, whether it's remote or not, is still looking for a job or a new opportunity. So I think there might be some deals to be had in terms of if you're looking for somebody now might be the right time because things have slowed down in terms of the amount of jobs that are available. Yeah, you could be the bell at the ball potentially. Correct. And also, you know, this is often correlated with July and August. So it'll be interesting to see as we make that, you know, that turn into the fall, you know, how things shake out and we'll share the percentages on the show and see. I'm particularly interested to see if candidate sentiment changes. So far, I mean, candidates just have been pretty consistent. They really want to work at companies of people who listen to podcasts like these. They really want remote jobs, especially candidates that say don't live in North America. The North American candidate situation is a little bit different. They're still quite demandy relative to folks who live in Europe, South America, and Asia. I agree. But it'll be interesting to see how the sentiment shakes out, particularly for North American-based candidates. If this sort of uh, meta situation continues, we now have 130,000 candidates uploaded into our system that 
like raised their hand and elected to be there. And they're searchable in a very cool way, like similar to how you can search jobs on the front page. Yeah. You can now search through all of our candidates. Basically, you only have access to it if you post a job with us. You can basically uh, invite and message uh, candidates. But we released this before and it was like we didn't have our search together. So it was like really hard to search people based on their preferences and their resume and whatnot. Now, like we have a really good search engine behind it. So it's really easy to find people. So it will be interesting to see how people interact with it. Well, and the cool prototype is that our recruiting team uses it and have made placements. So hopefully some of our job clients can find placements out of there as well. Some other news, I've been working a lot on this year's DCBKK, which is our 10th year anniversary. And yeah, just pipe train. I'm, I'm thinking about the t-shirt. I'm <laughs> thinking about the t-shirt. Thinking about what kind of stickers are we going to order? Anyway, really looking forward to that. We're running into some like interesting challenges at the hotel because we've never had this many people before. The hotel is like, Number one, this is great that you guys are coming back. We miss you. Number two, uh, I don't know if we have as much sandwiches for yeah. everybody. <laughs> we're, we're in trouble. We need to have a conversation about how to do this. So it's very exciting for us. Everybody is doing a little revenge travel, I think. Yeah. Doing a little bit of revenge uh, conferencing too. Yeah. I really hope that we can keep up this momentum. Yeah. But. It's a little bit of like this yin and yang. I want to get into this later in the episode is like during COVID, it was like this opportunity to reassess your schedule and kind of stay close to home and like grindstone kind of stuff. But then coming here to Barcelona and assembling a, a, a kind of a ad hoc mastermind in an office and like getting the new ideas jogged and people coming through and sharing their ideas. It just really reminded me of that electric quality. And it doesn't need to be 12 months out of the year, but having a few months where you're with people, you get your team together at a retreat, you pull together a mastermind, you go to an event, whatever it is, it makes an enormous difference. So I have a lot of optimism and energy going into the fall. One thing here, Dan, real quick, little pitch. We have a couple of sponsorship positions still available for the conference and then also for this pod. So best to email you on that, dan at tropicalmba.com. All right, Ian, let's switch gears to talk about digital nomad debate. The digital nomad debate this week on the Twitters has to do with friend of the show and few times guest, Jesse Schoberg. The headline reads, this 41-year-old left the U.S. for Bangkok and lives a luxurious lifestyle on $8,000 a month. So, Ian, this is pulled from a CNBC.com series in which they feature people who live in different cities and they talk about their budgets. And I think it's so fascinating to see our community in the mainstream media and how the culture talks about it. Some details that jump out. Jesse spends $1,900 on food every month. $197 on transportation. That's pretty nice. He has $2,600 in discretionary spending for a total of about $7,800. Quote, the 41-year-old entrepreneur has been now living abroad for 14 years. This is a story we've outlined on this show. So if you want to listen to Jesse's, uh, he's been a wonderful guest in the past. Back to the quote, splitting his time among more than 40 countries. He has no plans to return to the U.S. anytime soon. Quote, the quality of life in Thailand compared to the United States is much better for 90% of things and more stress-free, he says. It's also a lot easier to afford a luxurious lifestyle. Couple things. First off, the theme of digital nomads cherry picking experiences of the wealthy before they're wealthy. Sometimes a double edged sword, but mostly pretty great. Look at all the things you can do as a digital nomad or as a location independent person. Yeah. You can volunteer. You can have month long adventures. I saw recent guests on the show, Neil Parekh motorcycling through Africa. 
that's a wealthy thing, man. That's something that wealthy people do. Yep. But if you loan a location independent business, boom, you can do it. You can be the CEO of a company. Often that takes a lot to afford, but if you move to some place where you can baseline, you have a couple grand a month in revenues and say, you know what? I'm the CEO. Going to do that. You can have very low life admin. One of the things Jesse mentions in this article is the concept of a service department. It doesn't really exist in America. We don't have that. Wealthy people have something like that. But in Thailand, boom, you can have for a couple grand a month. You can spend the summer in Europe. How about this? You can join hashtag cancel winner. This is something wealthy people have been doing for centuries. They canceled winter except for skiing. Okay. A little bit of salt on all this good news is, look, I mean, even if you achieve this luxurious lifestyle, all the hard work's still ahead of you. You still got to answer all the big questions in life. Yeah. But sometimes it's really damn cool to, to answer some of these fun ones along the way, which is, how's my life going to be exciting and dense and rich as I pursue my work? Your reaction to the, the Digital Nomad article? I thought it was great. It was good to see our friend Jesse uh, in the mainstream media. Of course, you know, with any piece that's written in mainstream media, don't read the comments. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I want you to comment. That's the yeah. <laughs> yeah, the comments were the worst. I mean, not just there, but on Twitter. There's many Twitter debates about this. And I thought the really brave thing for Jesse to do was he put it all out there, including his income, yeah. which most people would not do. And the reason he did it was to show people how to do it, which is... You need the numbers to understand how it works and how you can do it. And so I thought Jesse was really brave doing that. And then he got skewered a bit for how much he was spending on food and beverage and <laughs> this and that. And there was quite a debate going on. Should you be spending this much, number one? Number two, I can do it much cheaper. This guy's an idiot because he spends this much. And Jesse's basic response was like, I've been doing this for a long time. I know exactly how much I want to spend. I know how much I can spend. Thank you very much. That was not the point of him putting out these numbers. In my opinion, it was to show people how to do it, how to live this life and what the breakdown looks like. So well, again, that's a little bit of our community in the mainstream too, which is like that kind of transparency. I can recall a handful of times where I spoke like I speak in the community to normies and got skewered for it. Yeah. I think there's another interesting concept is we watched a classic expat and like pensioner game or backpacker game of expense shaming happening. And I got to say, it's an honest, the last few years I lived in Chiang Mai, I didn't tell anybody how much I paid for rent. There's a kind of a thing like you're an idiot for paying that. And I thought it was interesting to see that dialogue go where Jesse's message of reducing his life administration to zero yeah. is super powerful. Think about the kind of leverage he has in his business. Drop in blog, check it out. Yeah. Think about the kind of leverage he has over there. So for example, getting a service department versus setting up your own apartment. Okay, it's half the price, but it might take you a month of headaches that are ongoing and part-time to get that apartment set up or a similar fee. And plus you lose your flexibility. Yeah. For someone that runs a company the size of Jesse's, he can have that leverage by putting that time and energy into valuable products, not simply saving money, but investing in himself and his own time. That was my big takeaway. That's Jesse's message to me is not only live this amazing life that you're passionate about, but leverage your time. Get out of the day-to-day -day boring rote tasks unless you derive enjoyment from that. Good job, Jesse. We appreciate that. 
Got an email from a listener. I sat on the beach with a cigar and a few podcasts last night. I'm a part of the Ecom Fuel community, and I enjoyed your episode on Andrew's podcast. Brian, who is a CEO, we appreciate you being a boss. And part of the reason Brian was reaching out to me, first off, I get the question occasionally, the DC is amazing. The DC is such a unique, incredible place. Are there other communities like the DC? And e-commerce fuel, I would say, is one that's very, very similar. Also, Tiny Seed. I think Tiny Seed is a very similar community, although they don't have forum aspect as much, but they do have the events and that kind of like like-minded, let's help each other out kind of vibe. So I wanted to point that out. Also wanted to point out that I gave a call to action on that podcast I want to occasionally give on this pod, which is our book, Before the Exit, Drop the ball on the title and the cover design. But if you're thinking about building a business that you'd one day like to exit, which is I'm assuming most of you, you should email me right now and ask me for a free copy of this book. I'll send it to you, dan at tropicalmba.com. All right, Ian, let's get moving on to our main topic for the day. And we're going to talk about educating children and what that might look like in a post-COVID or sort of hyper-globalized scenario. So of course, we're you know in the middle of the summer here in Barcelona. Kids are a big theme here in Barcelona. You see a lot of them on the street. Sometimes in America, you got to ask yourself, where do kids go? Well, you're not allowed <laughs> to let them out of your sight or call the cops on you, man. <laughs> <laughs> so it's August now, but of course in September, we've got the return of school, at least for those with kids in traditional education. And we just, there's been a lot of conversation, comments, and questions. A lot of DCBKK attendees are bringing their families and stuff. It's just, there's a lot of buzz around this topic right now. Getting older, man. That's why. Yeah. So Ian and I are going to comment on it, but also recently a teacher and entrepreneur reached out to us to say he'd be happy to share some thoughts and responses with would-be nomadic type parents. So we took him up on it. We're going to roll what we recorded. And then at the end, we're going to come back with our own thoughts because, you know, I've got the boss man with me here and we can talk about the little boss man as well because he's been attending school here in Barcelona. I just love that nickname. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Elliot Zelenskis. And I'm currently an elementary school teacher working at an international school here in Hong Kong. Previously, I started a tutoring agency online. And since coming here to Hong Kong, I started nomadicteachers.com, which helps find international school teachers that are living all around the globe. All right. So first comment, has anyone created or thought about creating a platform that essentially connects nomadic families with teachers willing to travel the world with the families. I feel like this would be a wonderful experience for everyone involved. Kids get private, personalized education while traveling all around the world. Parents can fulfill their dreams of travel and keep their careers without worrying about educating their kids. Teachers can also fulfill their dreams of travel, but they're also teaching the kids. This would be a really interesting option for young teachers looking for an incredible experience. From a cost perspective, I know a lot of parents who spend a ton of money on private school education So this would be another version of that. I feel like a lot of teachers, especially those early in their careers, would jump at a chance to be a private teacher and travel the world for, say, 50, 60 grand a year. Well, my response to that is that it's an awesome idea. So although people may have wanted to raise families abroad, even the idea of having an American family in Bangkok, in Barcelona, for example, was so new even a decade ago that they would put them into the international schools. And I don't think that the idea along with the technology has caught up. And I honestly just don't think anyone's created it yet, but not for a reason that it couldn't happen. So some of the issues that could arise are making sure that 
teachers are qualified. And because they're working with children, that's really important that you do background checks. And again, if you're going to be traveling with the person that you also just want to get along with them and their own personality, maybe one of the websites could help do that, like do background checks and make sure that they are qualified. And then even vet them kind of like Dynamite Jobs is doing with this white glove service of really vetting the people who are applying to the jobs. Maybe a platform could do something really similar too. Whether you're a founder, a recruiting manager, or just the person who does everything around the office that's also hiring the next person, we've got stress-free ways to help you find your next great remote employee. Check it out. Click through on your phone. I made a chart that shows all of our products for SaaS and e-commerce companies seeking to save time and build elite teams. Try our flat rate recruiting product. We have a 90% success rate. For teams who need to hire quickly, try our pre-vetted candidates. Right now on our website, we've got over 200 potential team members that our experienced recruiting team has already spoken with and are looking to go work at companies like yours. And for companies seeking to maximize candidate flow and direct it by skill, location, level of experience, all while filtering out spam candidates, you got to post a job on our incredible platform. Go ahead and post a job over at Dynamite Jobs and click promote. That starts at just a few hundred dollars. All of our clients receive full email and phone support so your campaigns won't ever stall out. Check out our site or schedule a call today. Dynamite Jobs the hiring platform for remote-first companies. All right, next comment, and I quote, I have been noodling on the idea that a school that is designed for traveling families, perhaps a network of schools where kids can have a consistent education, whether they stay in a place for three months or 12. For example, if they had a few branches, like one in Bali, Portugal, and Costa Rica, one in the U.S., one in London, Flexible families who want to do a year somewhere can attend, but also families who migrate throughout the year can do three months in one place and six in another. Balancing capacity and keeping teachers employed might be hard if one school is empty certain months of the year. So I thought that maybe the teachers would like to migrate too. Yeah, this is one of my favorite ideas, although it seems like the solution is like what exactly what you want, but it's not exactly what the schools want. And just being someone who I have previously worked at international schools in Seoul, in Shanghai, in San Francisco, and now I'm in Hong Kong. And I know how competitive it is to get into these international schools, even if you're going to be there for the entire year. A lot of schools, for example, here in Hong Kong, make parents put down pretty hefty deposits just to get a place for their children. And because international schools are quite like bureaucratic, there's a lot of like hoops just to get into them. And I feel like some of the principals and educational leaders, they would have a hard time convincing the heads of school and the owners of these international schools to let kids sort of come and go because the number one concern for teachers and educational leaders is always the safety of the children. And so when you have different kids coming in at different points in time, of course, there could be For example, like the first quarter, new kids come in and then the second quarter, new kids come in. But I do think that international schools are pretty packed as it is. And I think that it would be a tough sell to the international schools to say, can we come for three months when they're already booked for 12? 
And then on the other hand, if you wanted to set up a totally different new type of school, there's all of the different laws and regulations that you would have to adhere to from the different countries and the different cities, as well as, of course, you're not doing this remotely. You would be going in class. So there's always rent to be paid and you would have to manage different properties around the world, like I said, in different countries. And I think that it would be pretty challenging to set that up. So the final quote we sent over to Elliot for comment is, and by the way, thanks to Elliot too for answering these questions. Really cool to get his perspective as someone with some skin in the game here. So final quote, final comment. As the digital nomad crowd grows up, gets married, has kids, and no one wants to quote, live in one place for nine months a year so their kids can go to school. They also don't want to homeschool them personally because, you know, they're busy optimizing their landing pages. At least we don't, and a lot of other entrepreneurs don't want to either. There are starting to be these pop-up schools, some formal, some not. But if you take the average Dynamite Circle member and say, hey, we're all going to go to the south of Spain for three months, and we're going to have ex-teachers who focus on Y classes, you'd have the community build up around you, the kids get educated, and the whole you keep the whole dream alive of this uh, location-independent dream. So if a group of parents wanted to come and find a teacher to teach their children I think one thing that would be really important for the parents is that they kind of take out the piece of paper and sort of do the napkin math for what is expected based within this family group before they start looking for teachers. Because I know, for example, some of the parents of the children that I teach right now, they love when I use computers. And then some of the parents, they would prefer that there's a lot less screen time. And so I think things like that would be less up to the teacher initially and should be more compromised between the parents who are going to kind of set up this education for their children. I think that the standards that children are always taught in, for example, like the United States core standards, those should just be taught and then it should be up to the teacher and that the parents should trust how much the teacher is teaching, for example, math and science and reading and writing it would only take to find like one person along with a number of families who are interested in this and then have a conversation to see how the matching and how the pairing can happen. Because as we've been talking about so far, there are a lot of different options and I don't even think that we've hit on all of them because there's online learning, there's independent learning. It could be also very dependent on the age, right? So if a student is in junior high school or high school, maybe online courses would work really well for them, or at least a hybrid. Whereas with the young learners, they would probably want more hands-on and like in-person learning. This is going to be the first generation of teachers who are both qualified, capable, young enough, willing, and they would really like a position like this. I just want to give a shout out to Elliot for giving his perspective. You can contact him at his website, over at nomadicteachers.com. So we got a lot of reflections on this, Ian. Certainly ideas have been popping around. Might you just talk about your recent experience and we'll start there. Sure, yeah. I'm like kind of in the middle of this, Dan. And I think there's actually a lot of uh, interesting dialogue going on even in the mainstream right now about this. Uh, there's a huge uh, teacher shortage. It was on the front page of the New York Times the other day. Just, you know, in America specifically, it's like uh, we trust these people with our children all day. Safety is a concern now, like it's never been before. These people are probably paid way less than they should be for the responsibility that they have to educate the youth. 
it seems like in terms of importance, I think America's at like an all-time high in, in terms of uh, not being able to see past their hand that's right in front of their face. Like not really caring, interestingly enough, about these next generations, right? And what happens in school. It's like, not my problem. I don't have kids. Huh. Not my problem. My kids are already through school. Like education is not like this national concern in the same way it might be in other countries. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's the industry, if you even want to call it that, I think it's just like ripe for disruption and ideas like Elliot has here in terms of what we're going to do, especially people that are, I think like me, that are trying to make active decisions about it as we travel. I want to say something controversial here before we get into the legitimate stuff. I wonder, I'm curious about the post-COVID world. It's not talked about very much. How did this period of two years being locked up at home, like changing jobs, getting funding from the government, how did that change our world? Not about how we think about viruses, but how we think about our lives, our families, our business. I suspect there's a lot here. Like, you know, when people talk about teachers being great and underpaid and stuff, there's a big part of me that's like, yeah, Mr. So-and-so has changed my life. And then there's a big part of me that thinks about the other half of the teachers I had and thought, yeah. They were the original life hackers, man. They're doing this because they like summer as much as I do. Sure. And I wonder if there's a like this teacher shortage has something to do with that. We're seeing a lot of teachers in our candidate pool at Dynamite Jobs. Yeah. I don't know the story, but put two and two together. It's perhaps the case that they saw everyone around them getting the benefits that they already had. And then it's like, well, I still got to put up with the BS of the stress of the job the other nine months. Maybe I'm just going to go get myself a remote job over at Dynamite Jobs and leverage my excellent educational abilities to be an internet marketer for an internet company. It's yeah. possible. Yeah. I do think, though, I, want, I wanted to kind of say, like, one of the themes that's been coming up this summer for me and just kind of seeing new people and talking to people is that we had the ability to do all this stuff, whether it's remote work, async companies, educate your kids in pods and remote islands or whatever but like the power structures got shook up and i think there's been this kind of collective reflection on life and you just don't really see people going back to normal in terms of their work and i'm seeing it more with the educational stuff we all experienced essentially being digital nomads yeah for a year and it's just kind of interesting to see how these the attitudes have changed permanently afterwards. And I suspect that a lot of people's have. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things, uh, caveats about this conversation is like, uh, I think when we talk about this, we're talking about the top one to 5% of people that can afford to do this. I mean, that's always kind of the case with this show. It's like, we figured out a way to make income, to travel. Some people have gotten really wealthy doing it. And this is kind of an extension of that conversation. So I do think that we need to leave room in this conversation to... Uh, kind of acknowledge the fact that a lot of people can't afford to do this. I think it's going to be a bigger problem in the long run. Some of my role models, uh, David and Carrie McKeegan, they've been on this show. I think that they have pieced together their kids' education. And you did an episode with Carrie on this topic. Partially their comments who are motivating this particular yeah, episode. Totally. So check that out. But Little Boss Man was in uh, Montessori school in Austin, Texas. And now he's in Montessori school here in uh, Spain. And we thought it was going to be difficult, but it was like super easy. It was like one email. <laughs> it was like, yeah, sure, we have a slot. And then it was like, well, how about for August? And it's like, yeah, sure. Costs half as much. He's there for longer. <laughs> and I would say that the quality is very similar from what I've seen. 
So it's been a, a basically an easy transition, which is kind of weird. Like I thought it was going to be very hard on him and on us, but it was essentially seamless. So I think that that was one of the things that was really interesting. Now, keep in mind, he's like almost five. So I think if you have somebody that's older, you have a kid that's older, like 13, 14, a whole bunch of different problems, I, I'm sure, arise. Ripping them out of their friend groups, I think, yeah. is a big thing. We've had a whole episode about that. We'll link up to it as well, yep. which like these kind of age inflection points. Yep. One of the questions I have as a non-parent, just like the naive interlocutor, which is like, what are our baselines here? Like a, one of the concepts on this show is like apprenticeships. And I'm like, a lot of school is about fundamentally caretaking of children, right? Yeah. Elliot brought up safety. We come from an industrialized economy where it's very important to have children outside of the house so that mom and dad can both labor, right? Yeah. And that's sort of been a cultural thing that we've inherited. There's part of me that wonders, how much does this stuff matter objectively? Like if a child just didn't go to school and the, what would they end up learning? I'm sorry, I, I want to know like, I think what it's the a, baseline is. You know it's what I mean? a decent experiment for you to run with your kid. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm going to do it. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I think it's a matter of exposure. I think that that's one of the coolest things that I've learned about uh, school, whether it's Montessori or whatever it is, is like, I'm boring. I like three things, you right. know, and he doesn't get exposure to everything. He yeah. goes to school and they're painting or they're doing this or that. It's things that I would never do at home. And I think that that's the same with school. So your math, your science, your calculus. So it's an interesting place, I think, to go and to be inundated with new um, ideas and new structures, new ways of learning, and then new stimulus. Totally. What if there was like a modular system? I know there's educational standards, but what if I kind of like the idea of you have this home base but then you get no penalty for ripping the kid out and then they just stick to the system or you hire what we would call in the business world an integrator yeah. to like keep them on track in the curriculum while you're doing whatever it is you're doing. And you could even have like local groups that get together to follow along with that method or standard. I don't know. Right now you get penalized if you take your kid on an amazing adventure. I think it's going to be interesting for those people that are qualified and actually understand how to teach to come up with these new systems. Because as we're pointing out here, I think that there's a huge hole in the market for that kind of thing to exist. Now, what you're pointing to just a second ago is the other side of this thing, which is like the bureaucracy around it, you yeah. know? And I don't yeah. know what it is in like these different countries, but when we're talking about like setting up schools in different countries and popping in, I can only imagine like there's going to be, you know, Spain, right? The bureaucracy around everything else. Yeah. I can only imagine how hard it's going to be uh, to get around some of this stuff. Yeah. It's like COVID was a big shakeup, but not didn't shake up everything. And there are these like legacy power structures. One in particular is you talk about as kids get into their early teens, the friendship group seems to be a theme amongst listeners. They say that's really important. But also then access to elite institutions or legacy institutions, right? At a certain point, Certain kinds of GPAs with certain kinds of schools with certain kinds of relationships lead to certifications or the ability to get into an elite university, which I got to say, for all our willingness over the years here to like reconsider education and to look back at the apprentice model and ask if that has a future, I still am very sympathetic to the American university experience. So if you have perspectives or opinions or resources you think we should check out to continue the conversation, on this show, just reach out to us. Our emails are Dan and Ian at this domain. We appreciate your prompts, your questions, 
and Elliot for jumping in and helping out with some of this. Appreciate you listening today. I believe we got a pool party to go to. We got a pool party to go to, but first, got some work. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.